Lucid is on the air. Welcome. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. This is episode number 20. And today we're going to be talking about, of all people, Karl Marx. Yes, and you're probably saying to yourself, well, Steve, I thought this was supposed to be a Christian radio show. And what are you talking about this awful Karl Marx fellow? Well, Karl Marx, whether we like him or not, and he's certainly not uh, not one of my favorite people, but whether we like him or not, he's a pretty significant figure, and he's been in the news quite a bit here this past week. Maybe you've seen some things on this. Karl Marx, this is actually the 200th anniversary of his uh, his birth. I was reading through uh, something here. This was a, actually from an article in uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. And it says that Karl Heinrich Marx was born on May 5th, 1818 in Trier, Rhine Province, Prussia. So he was from northern Germany, and he died on March 14th, 1883 in London, England. Now, uh, Karl Marx lived, I guess, uh, it was over the last 30 years of his life he lived in England. So that's, he he spent quite a bit of time in uh, in Great Britain and, and living in London. And he's best known as as the author for the, the Communist Manifesto and also for his later work uh, called Das Kapital or or simply Capital. And and it was in that work, together with his co-author Friedrich Engels, that Marx laid out the the basic tenets of of communism. A few other interesting points about Karl Marx is that he was the oldest surviving boy of nine children, so he came from a, a pretty big family. His father's name was Heinrich, and he was a, a successful lawyer. His mother's name was Henrietta. Uh, she was from Holland. Both his parents were Jewish, and according to this article in uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, in Encyclopedia Britannica, they descended from a long line of rabbis. But the article goes on to also say this. It says about a year before Carl was born, his father was baptized in the evangelical established church. And also that Carl was baptized when he was six years old. So both his father and Carl himself were both uh, baptized into the uh, into the uh, the the uh, the Protestant church. That's uh, very interesting. I didn't know that until I was actually reading through this this piece in uh, in Encyclopedia Britannica. The article that goes on to talk about that Marx was educated, he went uh, to high school at Trier from 1830 to 1835, and it makes the point, it says that Marx's writings during this period, that it is referring to his time in high school, exhibited a spirit of Christian devotion and a longing for self-sacrifice on behalf of humanity. Well, when he went off to college, I think he uh, that, that's when he really became, um, really turned to atheism. But at least there was a time there where there seems to have been some some Christian influence in his life when, when he was a young man. So all this brings me in to talk a little bit about Karl Marx's 200th birthday This uh, that was uh, celebrated here this week. It's interesting, there's a, a an article, and this is from ABC News, it has the following headline. It says, Karl Marx's hometown unveils giant bronze statue of philosopher on philosopher's 200th birthday. So there's this big, it's about an eight-foot-tall, larger-than-life statue of Karl Marx, which was a gift of uh, from the... Uh, from the uh, the government of China, the communist government of China. You know, a lot of times I, I don't think that we in the West maybe necessarily always talk about the, you know, the, the communist government of China. 
you know, there, there's a lot of manufacturing that goes on in China. There's a lot of things that are uh, borrowed from the capital from capitalism that go on in China. So it's not, in some ways, it's not communism of of the say the Soviet Union variety or the Eastern European variety that that took place during the Cold War. Nevertheless, it is a communist government. It's a it's a government that that is very open in its advocacy of of Charles Darwin. I think the current president of China, um, Xi, he mentioned in a speech that you know the Karl Marx was one of the really great thinkers of the age. Well, I, I wouldn't say that he was a great thinker in the sense that he was a good thinker. He certainly was a very influential thinker. And and I don't think anyone can deny that, whether or not we, we actually like what, what Karl Marx had to say. The ABC News article is is pretty much straight down the middle. It it doesn't uh, t- appear to, to take sides one way or the other. However, I want to read you a couple of examples of, of, uh, of newspapers that do that. Now, this is an article that's from The Guardian. The Guardian is a newspaper from, from Great Britain, and it's it's very leftist. And it has a headline on it. It says, Two centuries on, Karl Marx feels more revolutionary than ever. And it's by a fellow named Stuart Jeffries. And Jeffries goes on to write, The other day I stood at the grave of Karl Marx in Highgate Cemetery. Karl Marx is buried in London. Uh, it's in North London, wondering if he has anything to say to us today, 200 years after his birth on May 5th, 1818. Workers of all lands unite, reads the tombstone. But they haven't. The, solita- the solidarity of the exploited, which Marx took to be necessary to end capitalism, scarcely exists. And Stuart Jeffries goes on to lament the fact that even in China, you know, the world's biggest socially- socialist society, that even China, you know, it supplies capitalist enterprises with cheap labor that undercuts other workers around the world. So uh, Stuart Jeffries is very upset. He, he doesn't like the fact that that capitalism still exists at all, even if it exists in, in, in a really very damaged form. You know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people, you know, they blame the current problems in the world on capitalism, well, there really isn't a whole lot of capitalism that's actually out there. Even in, in the United States, I mean, people look to the United States as this bastion of capitalism, but it, it really isn't. It, we have a very mixed system in the United States. Our, our system is probably closer to fascism than it is to, to actual capitalism. And I, I don't want to go down that rabbit trail too far today, but, but what we have in the United States and really what we have in the, you know, the so-called capitalist West, and it's not just the United States. It's, it's really any other, any of the other countries in the West as well. What we have is, is not capitalism. It's, uh, it's, it's really some form or another of, uh, of, of fascism. But a lot of people think it's capitalism, and that's that's a big problem right there, because it tends to to confuse them. And when they see things go wrong, they they tend to blame it on capitalism rather than blaming it where the putting the blame where it should be, which is is on big government. So that was the that was the the Guardian. The Guardian thinks that the Karl Marx is pretty awesome. There was another article, and I wanted to share this with you. It has a headline that reads, Don't Celebrate Karl Marx. His Communism Has a Death Count in the Millions. Now, this article is by James Bovard, and it's a pretty good article. Uh, James Bovard is a a libertarian. Now, I'm not a libertarian, but uh, I was a libertarian at one time. Uh, I don't believe that, that Christians can consistently be libertarians. 
and again, that's kind of a rabbit trail. I don't want to go on today. I think that'd be something to be very interesting to explore at another time. However, a lot of what libertarians write, I, I certainly can't appreciate. And James Bovard has been a, a very consistent defender over the years of limited government, of capitalism. And, and of course, those are things that as a Christian, I very much believe in. And he, he's quite a good writer. And I'll just read you a, a short portion of what he had to say here. He said, Saturday marks 200 years since the birth of Karl Marx, and tributes are arising out around the, around the globe. In a New York Times tribute headlined, Happy birthday, Karl Marx, you are right. Philosophy professor Jason Barker declared that, quote, educated liberal opinion is today more or less unanimous in its agreement with Marx's basic thesis, end quote, on the flaws of capitalism. But this is true only if, quote, educated liberal opinion, end quote, simply does not care about tyranny. So, yeah, I mean, Karl Marx, it's kind of interesting. Karl Marx wanted to, to free the working classes. In order to free the working classes, what he wanted to do was, was increase government power, which I think on the, on the surface of it seems pretty contradictory, wouldn't you say? Here, here's what, what Bovard writes. He says, quote, Marxists assumed that vastly increasing government power was the key to liberating humanity. Glorifying command and control was the flip side of demonizing prices and profits. But all powerful regimes quickly became ends in themselves. In 1932, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin decreed the death penalty for any theft of state property. As millions of Ukrainians were starving due to the brutal collectivization of farms, even children poaching a few ears of corn could be shot. Well, yeah, that, that doesn't exactly seem like the worker's paradise now, does it? But some people think that, that Karl Marx was great, and they, 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 they like his rhetoric about, um, you know, about freeing the working class, but they, they don't want to recognize the extreme violence that was really right on the surface. I don't even want to say implied. It was actually right on the surface uh, in, in a lot of his writings. So that was James Bowman, and I, I'd encourage you to read his article. It's, as I said, I think it's it's quite good, and it's called Don't Celebrate Karl Marx. His communism, communism has a death count in the millions. That was published, again, in USA Today, which is a kind of a mainstream. Uh, I was actually surprised that they published this. That's a, a pretty mainstream uh, type of a publication, and I'm uh, uh, pleasantly surprised that they, they would run that uh, that op-ed by, by James Bovard. Now, what I want to do here in a couple of minutes is I actually want to read to you a section out of the Communist Manifesto. But just to assuage you, as I said, I'm not trying to, to make communists out of you. Far from it. In fact, I want to inoculate you against communism. Communism is not Christianity. Christianity is not communism. The two systems are not compatible. As a Christian, I reject communism. And I would encourage, if, if you are a Christian, uh, to read your Bibles and to... Uh, to really consider whether you know it's, it's possible to follow the dictates of, of Karl Marx uh, and, and to get those ideas out of the pages of Scripture, I, I, I don't think you can do it. In fact, I would say you can't do it. You can't do it. But here's uh, he, he, some people would object to reading Karl Marx. You know, some people would say, well, if you read Karl Marx and if you understand Karl Marx, then you're a communist. Well, that's not really true, and, and I want to uh, bring uh, bring Gordon Clark into the discussion here just for a moment. Gordon Clark wrote a book 
It's called Faith and Saving Faith. And I would, if you haven't read it, it, it's I would really encourage you to read it. It's not a long book. It's actually a very slim book. I, I think the edition that I have is, it's I'm pretty sure it's well under 100 pages. It's the kind of thing that you can sit down and read with, without... Um, without spending too much time on it, I know that you know Gordon Clark is maybe a, an author who has some very dense material, but a lot of what he says in there, I, I think, is, is is relatively straightforward. Maybe compared to some of the other books that he wrote, basically what he argues in Faith and Saving Faith is this: he says that faith, whether it's of a a secular variety or whether it's of a Christian variety, is basically from a, a psychological standpoint, it's it's the same thing. In that, in this respect, in that it consists in two parts. There, there, there are two. You, you you can take the idea of faith and you can break it down into two parts, or maybe elements. Maybe we could call them that. Uh, two elements to faith, and and here are the elements. Number one, understanding, and number two is agreement. And if you wanted to to put his his teaching on on faith, if you wanted to put it maybe into a formal uh, way of speaking, you would say this: Gordon Clark taught, and he taught correctly. By the way, I agree with Gordon Clark. I think he was was spot on in what he said. What Gordon Clark would say is that faith is assent to an understood proposition. Or to put it more simply, in order to have faith, you have to, number one, understand what someone is saying, and number two, you have to agree with him. So you have to have understanding and you have to have agreement. So for instance, when when you sit down to read Karl Marx, you can read Karl Marx, you can read the Communist Manifesto and you can understand it, but simply understanding the Communist Manifesto does not make you a Marxist. You only are a Marxist if you understand the Communist Manifesto and if you agree with the Communist Manifesto. So you have to understand and you have to agree with it. So as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid of studying things such as Karl Marx. There's that. Uh, there's a verse, I don't have it in front of me here, but where where the, uh, the Apostle Paul warns his readers, you know, don't be cheated by philosophy. And a lot of times Christians have this idea that the way that you avoid being cheated by philosophy is not to study it at all. You know, I don't want to get cheated by philosophy. I, I don't want to get cheated by Karl Marx, so I'm not going to ever read Karl Marx or ever talk about Karl Marx or ever think about Karl Marx. Well, the problem is that we live in a world that is is popular by people who do read Karl Marx and who do think about Karl Marx and who do understand Karl Marx and who do agree with Karl Marx. And, and we, and if if we don't have at least an understanding of what Karl Marx said, how are we going to be able to talk to those people? Another aspect of this uh, of it is this: How are we going to protect ourselves from the from being influenced by them? I have a paragraph here, and th- this is actually taken from a uh, an essay by John Robbins. It's called "Molding Men," and I think that he actually states this particular issue. He states it very, very well. And and he talks about how some people discourage students. Uh, he, he was talking to this, the particular context. This was a Christian college. And that there were, were some speakers that were, were encouraging people, you know, not to study and, and to avoid, you know, particularly studying, uh, 
studying secular philosophy, and he said to these 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 uh, these men, he says they urge students to avoid studying philosophy. This is John Robbins. I'll just put quotes around his quote. They he's talking about some of these um, these speakers on Christian colleges. They urge students to avoid studying philosophy, but the study of philosophy is the second way of recognizing counterfeits. When banks train tellers, they have them study genuine bills, but they also show them some counterfeits so that the tellers can see the differences between the fakes and the real bills. The study of secular philosophy is very rewarding, if only for that reason. By seeing where Plato, Aristotle, and Marx made their mistakes, perhaps you can avoid the same mistakes and understand the scripture better. Ironically, it is those who are not familiar with secular philosophy who are most influenced by it, because they do not recognize secular ideas when they appear in the media, the churches, and in their own minds. End quote. So that was that was John Robbins talking about the importance of Christians studying secular philosophers. And he used that idea of a, of a bank teller, right? I mean, it, you know, unless you've actually held, you know, uh, say a real $20 bill and then maybe seen a really good fake copy and held it in your hand and looked at it, it might be easy to be fooled. You know, if somebody makes a really good copy, and there are some people that can make some really good counterfeits, you might get fooled by it. But if you've had a chance to study the counterfeit, to feel it, to see what it looks like, to see how it, how it, what it, what it feels like, um, to compare it to the the real genuine article, it's going to enable you to 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 spot the fake when you're out there and you're in the process of doing your, your job as a teller. And it's the same thing as, as Christians, you know, by, by reading and studying under, and understanding, not agreeing with, but understanding some, uh, a writer such as Karl Marx, it's a way of, of inoculating ourselves against the, uh, really one of the, uh, the most influential thinkers of the past, uh, of the past 150, 200 years. I mean, there's a lot of Marxism that's out there in in one form or another and it's important that we be able to recognize it and to be able to critique it now i mentioned that there's a lot of marxism out there and i wanted to read from you this is just a, a very small section of of the communist manifesto the communist manifesto very famously has 10 planks you know in, in christianity we have the 10 commandments well in in marxism there are the the 10 planks of the communist manifesto I'm going to read through these for you and and maybe just briefly comment on them on them and I think you might be surprised how many of these 10 planks of the communist manifesto are actually uh prevalent and in in set up and <laughs> and in ingrained into our society certainly here in the United States and and I think you could also say that throughout the supposedly capitalist western world so here we go, just reading through this. This is the beginning of it. Uh, this is Ingalls writing. He says, These measures will be, of course, different in different countries. Nevertheless, in the most advanced countries, the following will be pretty generally applicable. Number one, abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Now, you know, the, there's a tremendous amount of violence implied in that, but what, what communism is all about is... It's all about um, putting the means of production in the hands of uh, of the government. the The private citizen is not supposed to own the means of production. In Marxism, you can own your own pair of shoes and 
you know, your own shirt and things like that, but you can't own the store in which those are sold. You can't own the factory that makes the shirts. You can't own the farms that, that say, uh, um, you know, that, that grow the, you know, I don't know, <laughs> flax or, or whatever it is, you know, whatever you, you use, whatever material that that's used, say for shirts, um, or, or making clothing. You can't have any of those things. You can't own farms. You can't own factories. You can't own stores. You can't own the means of production. You can own your own, uh, like I say, your own toothbrush or maybe your own pair of shoes or something like that. And, and, and of course, you know, we haven't totally abolished private property in, in the West in the supposedly capitalist West, but we have slapped on it, um, very high taxes and lots and lots of regulations. In fact, I, I, I kind of want to I want to pause on that because my the very first time I ever had any communication with John Robbins, it was interesting. I wrote him an email, and this goes back, oh, I'd say about fifteen. And now it, it goes back to maybe around the year two thousand, about eighteen years ago, eighteen twenty years ago, somewhere in that range. I don't have the email anymore, and I'm really upset that I don't have that. But for all that. I do remember very well what the contents of the email were. And what I did is I wrote him this email and I asked him, I said, what's the difference between fascism and communism? What's the difference between these two? Because it wasn't clear to me. I mean, they both seem like pretty totalitarian systems, pretty oppressive systems. And, and they were very hostile to one another, you know, fascists and communists, you know, famously have, uh, have hated one another for a long time, but yet it seemed to me that a lot, awful lot, that they had an awful lot in common too. Well, I, so I asked, I asked John Robbins this question, and he wrote back to me, and he said, "Well, the the main difference is that in communism, the state owns the means of production. In the fascist system, the state doesn't own the means of production, but they regulate and subsidize everything. So." You know, the, the factory owner in a fascist system can still own his factory, but the government tells you how to run everything. Whereas in the communist system, the state owns the factory. And, and you know, if, if you own the factory before the communists took over, well, that's just too bad because you're going to lose it and the state's going to take over. So the, the fascists let you let you own the factory, but you, you, you don't have a lot of say in terms of, of what's actually done with it, whereas the communists just take it from you outright. So that's the difference between those two systems. And, and I, I thought it was interesting, too, the way, the way that John closed that email back to me. He said, we have a lot more fascism than we do communism in this country. He's talking about the United States. And that's true. So, you know, yeah, right now, you know, the government hasn't come in and, and taken everybody's property. But when you think about the massive amount of controls and, and regulation and taxes that we all have to deal with in virtually every facet of our lives, you realize that that we don't have a capitalist system. It's, it's more of a fascist system where everything is controlled from uh, from on high someplace. So, yeah, that was the first plank in the communist uh of, of the communist manifesto. The second plank is this, and you're like this, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Well, do we have that in the United States? Um, well, we, it hasn't been too long since we, since tax day, what was that? April 17th this year, 2018. And yes, we do have a heavy and a and a graduated income tax. The more money you make, the, uh, the greater hunk, the greater the percentage the government takes out of, uh, takes from you. I think I read someplace where the bottom 50% of wage earners don't pay any income tax at all. 
or something to that degree. And the more money you make, the the bigger the chunk that the government demands out of your hide. So that's that's uh, certainly something that we have here in the United States. Uh, that began with the establishment of the IRS in was it was it 1914? Um, I want to say the income tax maybe went into effect in in around 1914, 1915. I, I don't know the exact year, but it was right around that time. And and of course, when you think of all not not just the the, the cost in terms of taxes, but how much time we spend on that. And my goodness, it's a it's a huge burden to be born. And of course, the United States is not alone in that. I think pretty much every uh, advanced Western nation has uh, has a similar system to the the Internal Revenue Service. So that's number two: heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Number three: abolition of all right of inheritance. Well, I mean, we have death taxes, right? So if somebody dies and uh, they, he has a certain estate, sometimes what's had what what has happened is, is people have actually had to to sell the farms or sell the businesses because they didn't have the cash to be able to pay the inheritance taxes when they, when they received the business, you know, the family business or the family farm. Now, I think that there have been some changes in that over the past year in the, the, the Trump administration, I think reduced the, uh, the, uh, the death taxes, but I mean, death taxes really are, are something that that's very much in accord with Marxism. Well, they don't call it a death tax. I know the death tax is what uh, what people like me call it, but they, they would call it an inheritance tax. I guess somehow an inheritance tax sounds better than a death tax because, uh, you know, they tax you all your life, and then when you die, then they, they kick you again. But uh, Karl Marx didn't, didn't – uh, he wanted to get rid of inheritance. Uh, that was the third plank. So the fourth plank is this, confiscation of all property of all immigrants – and rebels. So if you wanted to leave the country, for instance, if you didn't like the government, well, they'd just take your property. Uh, sorry, you, yeah, you can leave the country, but yeah, you know, every, every last red cent that you've ever had, well, that you're going to have to leave with us. So again, this is, is just really very totalitarian. This is very heavy-handed big government. And this is supposed to make free. You know, the, it's, there was that, that famous saying of the Nazis. They said, you know, Arbeit macht frei. You know, work makes free. <laughs> I think there was a sign over one of their concentration camps, and people uh, look at that, and and, and 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 of course that was a you know that was a big bunch of propaganda, and and that that's very famously propaganda, but you know the idea that that somehow massive central government makes the workers free is is I think just as absurd. Uh, as as that uh, that saying of the Nazis, so yeah, so Karl Marx he wants to confiscate the property of all immigrants and rebels. Okay, plank number five. The central th- this is maybe my personal favorite here. Plank number five of the Communist Manifesto is that's kind of like one of those old David Letterman uh, top ten lists, right? <laughs> anyway, uh, this is number five on the uh, Marx's greatest hits here: centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Hmm, I wonder if we have anything like that in the United States. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. The Federal Reserve. Yes, um, the Federal Reserve is, you know, if I had to pick one institution that should be abolished, it would be central banking. 
Now, the Federal Reserve is just but one example of a central bank. It's the, the most prominent central bank in the world. It's the lead central bank as it issues the currency, the U.S. dollar, which is the world's reserve currency. But yes, uh, Karl Marx, he loves central bankers. Well, central bankers have wrought enormous evil, not just in this country, uh, but in, in any country where they're present, which is just about every country on the face of the earth. They have done enormous damage. But these people, uh, Karl Marx thinks, uh, thinks are wonderful. Number six of the communist, that plank of the communist manifesto, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. So you can't talk to one another and you can't move around uh, unless it's under the, the control of the state. Well, that, that doesn't exactly sound like a free society, does it? And, and do we have things like that in, in the United States? Well, I would argue very much that we do. You know, you think about, for instance, the Federal Communication Commission. The Federal Communication Commission, the FCC for short, I mean, they regulate what goes out over the airwaves. So, you know, television broadcasters, radio broadcasters, they all fall under the regulation of the FCC. And, you know, there's been a lot of people who have noticed in recent years that, you know, that the American press has really become pretty much the lapdog of the government. Basically, what they do is whatever talking points the government hands them, well, that they go out and repeat. You know, it's it's kind of like the old Soviet Pravda or something where where the the American press is sort of just the uh, another organ of the state. Now, the press isn't owned by the government, but they're controlled by the government. You know, the, the government holds over their heads these these broadcast licenses. And I think that's one of the way that the, that the government controls uh, controls the mainstream media. So we do have centralization of, of communication. And what about uh, what about transport? Well, I mean, we have things like the TSA. I mean, you can't get uh, get on an airplane without being groped, and there's all kinds of government regulations over various uh, various types of transportation, and and so it's you know, may, maybe it's not gotten to the extreme that that Karl Marx would have liked to have seen, but we certainly have a lot of government control over over communication and, and over transportation, over our ability to talk about things and our ability to move around. Number seven, Plank of the Communist Manifesto, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of soil generally in, a, uh, in accordance with a common plan. So, you know, once again, you know, we see here the idea of, of central planning. You know, the, the, the communists, and I remember this growing up uh, from the Soviet Union days, you know, or back in the days of the evil empire, as, as Ronald Reagan famously called it. But, but growing up and, and seeing, you know, news about the Soviet Union, I mean, you often hear about things, you know, these five-year plans. It seemed like the Russians were, the Soviets were big into five-year plans. And so, you know, all the, the economic activity had to be centrally planned out uh, from, um, from by the state. Number eight of uh, Plank of the Communist Manifesto, equal liability to, uh, of all to labor, establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. So, you know, once again, you know, the state is, is establishing armies. <laughs> you know, it's not a matter of, you know, and, and I suppose you, you would be drafted into these armies as well. You know, you didn't, if you, if you didn't want to be a farmer, well, maybe that was just too bad. You know, you, it was off to the, off to the fields with you regardless. 
Um, and it kind of reminds me a little bit. There, there's a, a wonderful article. It's written by by John Robbins. I think it's it's called the Bible in the Draft. And I don't have have that article here in front of me, but it's well worth reading. It's out there in the Trinity Foundation. It's called the Bible in the Draft, and he talks about how and he what it is is he actually um, uh, expounds First uh, Samuel chapter eight. First Samuel chapter eight. You know, it's where the people come to Samuel and they say, "We want a king. We want to be like all the other nations." And Samuel goes to God, and and um, God tells Samuel, "Well, go and tell the people this is going to be the behavior of the king if you get a king." And Samuel goes through this 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 uh, recites what the king is going to do. And, and, and the, the line that gets repeated by Samuel all the time is he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. You know, Samuel says he will, will take the best of your fields. He will take your servants. He will take your sons. Uh, he will take your daughters, you know, and, 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 and the best of your lands and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the king is going to take all of these things. And, that that's really I, I think ties in kind of with that that plank number eight, especially you know the idea of the establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. You know that that the government is going to take your sons, going to take your daughters, and uh, press them into uh, to forced labor. Now that's that is not a uh, biblical stance on government whatsoever, but that's what the communists want to do. Plank number nine. Combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. Yeah, and again, and it, it doesn't maybe say it explicitly here, but of course this is all done from the top down. This is, this is all centrally planned. And then the final one, this is number 10, and, and maybe in some ways, maybe this is the most important one. Um, you could probably make that argument. Number 10. Drum roll, please. Plank of the Communist Manifesto. Free education for all children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. Combination of education with industrial production, etc., etc. So the communists want, uh, the communists like the idea of free public education. And of course, in, in the West, that's, that's exactly the way it is. Now, of course, obviously it's not free. You know, it's paid for by, by very high taxes. And it's run by the government, but the communists want to want to get the kids early, and they want to fill their minds with uh, with communist propaganda. Now, I can tell you, you know, I went to public school. I grew up, and I went to public school my whole life, and I had to unlearn an awful lot. I had to unlearn an awful lot. There, when I was growing up, there wasn't homeschooling. I mean, there are a lot of, of Christian parents that homeschool their kids now, but that was not the case when I was growing up. In fact, I remember the first time I ever saw that. I remember we had a, a new youth minister at my church, and, and they homeschooled their kids. And I saw that. And I was probably maybe a senior in high school at the time, and I, I thought, well, you know, that's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> now, maybe some of you listening either homeschool your children or or maybe you yourself are homeschooled. But, you know, this was back, I'd, you know, it was maybe 35 years ago. And the whole homeschool movement was really brand new at the time. I mean, it just wasn't done. I mean, either you went to public school or or you went to private school of some sort. But, 
you know, homeschooling just simply did not exist. Now, I've known many people since that time who have homeschooled their children, and I, I, from the results that I've seen, I think it seems to work out very well, and it doesn't surprise me at all that that, that it does work out. But but that was something very new back then, and you know, there's an awful lot of dis- discouraging things that you you see in the world today. But I, I guess maybe if I wanted to point the one that has been encouraging to me is is to see how many people are actually doing this. Now, I mean, I realize it's still a tiny tiny minority of people compared to those who uh, educate their children in other ways, but just the fact that it's out there and the fact that it, it does seem to have, have grown over the decades is very encouraging to me. So anyway, I hope that you've enjoyed uh, some of this talk here. This Obviously, we, we just barely kind of scratched the surface on Karl Marx, but I wanted to share a few things with you, uh, especially going through the Communist Manifesto, and seeing just how many of uh, of those ten planks really have been, to some degree or another, instituted in the supposedly free and the supposedly capitalist West, and and these are institutions, you know, talk about things like public schooling and and a graduated income tax and central banking. These things did not exist in the United States at its founding. These things did not exist. Now we take them almost as though somehow they've been there since time, you know, since uh, you know, ever since Adam or something like this. But these things were never part of the American Republic from the beginning. But they've been things that have been brought about subsequent to Marx having written. Now I'm not going to say that Karl Marx is solely responsible for those institutions. I'm sure that he is not. But but he is certainly again one of the most influential thinkers of our time, and I think that some of the blame for those things can be laid on him. I, I don't think there's there's any question about that. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. I would encourage you to uh, to read and to study, uh, even Karl Marx, to read him to to understand him, but not to agree with him. There's that uh, there's a wonderful idea, and I know that John Robbins has talked about this in a number of his articles. It's called the Schrift Prinzip. It's a, an idea that was uh, first set forth by Martin Luther, and what Martin Luther said, the way he described a Schrift Prinzip, that that's a German term, by the way, as you might have guessed, uh, for uh, writing principle, and it was the idea that all of the books, that all of the works by all the scholars in the world need to be brought back to the Bible and to be judged by Scripture. And of course, when we look at the Bible, when we look at what it says about private property, uh, when we look at what it says about limited government, we see that, that the ideas of Karl Marx simply don't stand up. And maybe I just wanted to leave, leave you with this in closing. You know, think about what the the Bible has to say about uh, about government. You know, in Romans thirteen, you know, Paul talks about two functions of government. You know, to punish those who do evil, and to praise the good. And, and Peter also talks about that. You know, uh, nowhere in Scripture do we get this idea that the government should be in charge of education. Nowhere do we get this idea in Scripture. There should be a graduated income tax. Nowhere do we get this idea that there should be. Uh, Forced armies of, of agricultural workers, or set, or excuse me, or central banking. You know these things. The, these ideas they're, they're completely foreign to Scripture. You know Karl Marx did not get his ideas from Scripture. The Bible is the mind of God on economics, on politics, on all things. And when we compare what Karl Marx said to what the Scripture said about government, 
we find it wanting. You know, it's weighed in the balance and found wanting. And we can say the same sort of thing with economics. You know, Karl Marx wants to abolish all private property. He wants to put put all the means of production into the, the hands of the state. But, I mean, think about a few things. You know, there, there's that one, uh, it's the parable of the... Uh, what the the workers in the vineyard, you know, where the, the the vineyard owner goes out and he hires all these these agricultural workers, and he hires some in the morning and some in the afternoon. He hires a few people just uh, about an hour before quitting time, and then they get to the end uh, of the day, and he goes out and he pays them all the same. And and the guys that he'd hired early on in the day, well, they were angry because you know he he paid the people that only worked an hour the same amount as he paid people who'd been been working in the vineyard all day. And and you remember what what the what the vineyard owner replied he said is it not lawful for me to do what i wish with my own things is it not lawful for me to do what i wish with my own things well that is a statement of capitalism that is an endorsement of free markets a free enterprise so again karl marx not only is his politics wanting so too is his economics you know the Bible everywhere, and I just I just gave you one example, just a brief example. The Bible everywhere supports not only limited government, but it also supports private property, and that is the private ownership of the means of production. You know we see that all the time in Scripture. So I wanted to leave you with that thought. You know if 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 we we approach Karl Marx the way that uh, that Martin Luther would have us, I, th- I think we would. Um, we would find uh, his ideas to be uh, wide of the mark. He would miss the mark uh, of uh, of what the scripture says that uh, that uh, as Christians were were commanded to believe and to practice uh, in terms of politics and economics. So anyway, that's about all for this week. Thanks very much for your time and for listening. I really do appreciate that, and I hope you got something out of this. It's my certainly my prayer that you did, and I will talk to you next week. Take care.